Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Our guest on Future Hindsight is Aijen Pu. She is the executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and the co-director of Caring Across Generations. She's an award-winning activist, thought leader, and social innovator, and a leading voice in domestic workers' rights and family care advocacy. She's also the author of The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. Her leadership for the Domestic Workers Alliance led to the passage of the nation's first Domestic Workers Bill of Rights in 2010 in New York State. The National Caring Across Generations campaign aims to ensure access to affordable care for the nation's aging population and access to quality jobs for the caregiving workforce. Thank you for talking to Future Hindsight. Thanks for having me. I read your book with fascination. Can you explain uh, what the supply and demand problem is that we're going to face in the near future with um, a growing population of older people? Yes. I mean, this is something that I talk about every chance I get because I feel such urgency around this moment of demographic change where we have this really influential generation of baby boomers aging into retirement. 10,000 people turn 65 every single day. And then as a result of advances in healthcare and technology, people are also living longer than ever before, 20 years longer than when our safety net was first put into place. So we've got this extending lifespan, so much so that my grandmother's demographic of 85 and older is the fastest growing demographic in the country. We've got this large and growing older population, which also means a growing vulnerability to chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's and dementias, and just an increase in the need for care on that side of the generational spectrum. And we're wholly unprepared for what that means. Right now, over 50 million Americans are providing upwards of 20 hours per week of caregiving for their family members. And we have no program in place that supports these people to be able to afford elder care. We have this situation where we have women in the workforce in unprecedented numbers right at a time when we need more care than ever before. My book was really about how we prepare for this coming age wave, what I call the elder boom, and really sees it as an opportunity to make care jobs a profession that you can take pride in and really um, support your family on while we make good care much more affordable and accessible to the growing population in our country who will need it. And the impact of that on all working families will be enormous in terms of relieving a huge source of stress and a huge financial burden on the part of working families. Well, what's great about this is that these jobs cannot be outsourced. This is a tremendous win-win opportunity for both the employer and the employees. You propose that we tackle this issue by creating a new caring infrastructure in which caring is the operative word. Can you explain what you mean with that? We don't actually have real infrastructure to support working families with their family care responsibilities as they manage their careers and, and go to work in our economy. And the traditional 
way of understanding infrastructure. We really we think about it in terms of bridges and roads and tunnels, um, that which enables commerce. But we rarely think about it in terms of this very important dimension of our lives, uh, which is about our families and the fact that family care fundamentally enables our ability to participate in the workforce. And so in the 21st century, absent anybody staying home, most adult age working people are out there in the workforce. We really need to invest in our family care infrastructure in a different way. Our vision for that is an idea called universal family care. Universal family care would be a social security program that we all contribute to. Employers and employees alike contribute to help afford childcare, elder care, and home-based family care. Essentially, these are programs that we could rely upon to help care for our families while we participate in the workforce. We then discuss a team-oriented care system of caregivers, doctors, and families for the elderly. There are some good models that already exist in the U.S., and one that you mentioned is uh, a healthcare model called PACE, Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, which is a joint program of Medicare and Medicaid that delivers patient-centered coordinated care on a state level. And you recommend that it be expanded, or at the time when you wrote the book, 13 states participated in PACE. And have there been more states since then who have participated? There may have been some small expansions, but ultimately what we're dealing with is a moment where the attempts to undermine the Affordable Care Act and and Medicaid in particular have huge implications for what little progress has been made on this front. Many of these programs will really be in jeopardy if, frankly, members of Congress uh, who are in charge right now have their way. And that is something that we really need to educate voters on. We're working so hard to bring this country and our programs into the future. And what uh, leaders in Congress right now are doing is trying to take us backwards and really gut the resources for any kind of innovation, deeply, deeply needed innovation. And so... Um, that is what I've been working hard and Caring Cross Generations has been working hard to really protect the progress that's been made and attempt to really um, work with states that want to move the ball forward in light of and despite these federal attacks. But voters should really be following and tracking and, and making sure that we protect programs like Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. What would be the first step from a federal policy point of view to achieve this? Well, we really need to create the demand. When the voters demand a solution, that's when you start to see action. And we need candidates for elected office to be champions of a care agenda that supports the workforce, supports caregiving programs. And we're now seeing more and more appetite for that as more and more families are starting to say, hey, as voters, this is an issue that we want to see in your agenda. We want to see care champions in office. States 
can be a real laboratory for federal policy too. We were successful in passing a family caregiver benefit program in the state of Hawaii in 2017, the first of its kind in the country. And that really set a precedent and is an example of the kind of actions that states can take absent a federal program to really start the ball rolling. And we have a ballot initiative in the state of Maine that we're working on right now, um, Home Care for All, um, which will be on the ballot for Mainers in November of this year, where if you vote for it, you can actually look forward to having access to free home care in the future. Wow, tremendous. Home care is the future, not only because most elders express that they want to live out their old age at home, but because it's cheaper and has better outcomes. At the same time, it's not free, it costs money. And there was one suggestion you had called a care grid. Can you explain what that is and how it works? Yeah, so Maine is the oldest state in the nation. Our canvassers had so many really moving stories of talking to voters about the ballot initiative and people literally breaking down in tears saying, if only I had a program like this while I was caring for my dad, it would have changed everything. And that experience is so common in a state like Maine where you have a growing aging population and adults who are really struggling with the financial crises that it catalyzes for families who just can't afford care. It's just inhumane. And we've got to figure out how to design our systems, our infrastructure, our grid, so to speak, so that we can alleviate at least that part of it. Um, so that families can go through their natural course of life without that additional financial crisis that so many end up in. One of the things that you mention in your book is the experience of Germany and Japan, since they are ahead of the elder boom there. They have an aging population that started really peaking in the 90s. And you wrote that they addressed the needs of the elderly through universal social insurance, which sounds very similar to what you just explained. I found it very interesting that their eligibility is based on functional need, not income or assets or even the availability of family caregivers. What can we learn in the U.S. from their experience? You know, I think it's the fact that they have these programs that are sustainable and they're way ahead of us in terms of the growing aging populations. There's a lot we can learn about how having access to really good elder care has saved their healthcare systems enormous resources. One of the things that I talk about a lot is just how much waste there is today, up to about a trillion dollars per year. And a lot of that waste is concentrated at end-of-life elder care institutionalizations that happen as a result of and hospitalizations that happen as a result of not having access to good caregiving. This is what we always say is good caregiving is the best prevention 
especially when it comes to healthcare for older adults. And I think that's what you're really seeing in Japan and Germany is because people have access to care, they have better health outcomes, better quality of life, and actually save the whole healthcare system a tremendous amount of money. So there are efficiencies and improvements in life and in our systems that we haven't even tried. That's what Germany and Japan can give us a, a taste of, even though our systems are different. Many years before Ms. Pu's work with Caring Across Generations, she started a project with a group of volunteers of mostly Asian American women who were students or recent graduates at the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence called the Women Workers Project. They worked with Asian immigrant women who were not able to make ends meet in low-wage service jobs like domestic work and nail salon work. Domestic workers are especially isolated because there are no peers, no lunchrooms, or HR departments. In the homes where they work, often nobody knows that they're working there besides them and their employer. Now it's a national movement with women who are organizing in 30 cities across the country, coming together to make jobs that they can take pride in and support their families on. Your work in founding the Domestic Workers Alliance and in successfully shepherding the passage of the nation's first Domestic Workers Bill of Rights in 2010 extended basic labor protections to over 200,000 domestic workers in New York State. What are those basic labor protections? So we've been working around the country to try to get states to include protections for domestic workers because there's been this very long history of exclusion. We're talking about protections from discrimination and harassment, the right to overtime pay if you work more than 40 hours, the right to have paid time off or sick day, getting at least one day of rest per week, and a minimum of three days of paid time off per year. These are things that most of us take for granted when we go to work. There are no consistent norms about what fair employment is like in this industry. There's a wide spectrum of work situations, from truly wonderful to horrible cases of human trafficking, sexual assault, and modern-day slave-type situations. What essentially was the normal life that you encountered of a domestic worker before the labor laws were um, extended to them? Uh, well, you know, one thing that is absolutely true is that just because the laws exist on the books doesn't mean that the norm has changed in the industry. And that's why we still have our work cut out for us. All of us, in fact, should be a part of really changing the culture of this industry to support the kind of professionalism and healthy dynamics that we know are necessary when it comes to care in our households. You know, the the best description we have, I think, of this industry is really comparing it to the Wild West because you never really know what you're going to get. You might find a wonderful family who you stay with for decades. And I've even heard of nannies who've been with families ever since the parents were children. Um, and so, you know, I think that there are plenty of examples of really healthy, positive relationships that last for years and years. There are all these things that we still have a very long way to go to get to good, stable jobs for this workforce, access to benefits and a safety net, time off, 
paid holidays. If you call in sick, you still risk losing your job. Of course, there are plenty of wonderful employers out there where these things are the norm. But we have a lot of work to do to really set those norms for the whole industry. In this context, you often speak about dignity and respect. Why is dignity important? This work has taught me so much about dignity. You know, we're talking about the women who care for our children as nannies, who care for our parents and our grandparents, people who raised us uh, as home care workers and home health aides. And we're talking about our house cleaners who come in and try to restore sanity and order in our homes and in our chaotic lives. It's work that is incredibly important and meaningful of nurturing the human potential of a child or um, upholding the independence and dignity of um, an older person. And yet it's really deeply undervalued and it's not even considered work in, in a lot of contexts. It's often referred to as help. Really, it's a profession for millions of women out there. And the work itself is grounded in supporting the dignity of families and older people in our culture. It's so undervalued and really almost unseen in a way that is so undignified. And so that disconnect is something that we talk about a lot. What makes for a successful relationship between client and domestic worker, employer and domestic worker? What I hear when it works really well, um, oftentimes there is just a sense of mutual respect and recognition from the worker to be able to really listen to what is needed um, and to communicate and be able to really ask for what you need. Um, we're all in a process of change and life is pretty chaotic. So the ability to have good communication so that you're staying in sync with the people that you're supporting. We often say that what you would like in your job in terms of how you would like your employers to recognize and value your contributions, those same rules really apply. You've given us a comprehensive picture of what's about to happen. And uh, I wonder, what do you think will happen if we fail to build a caring infrastructure? I have already talked to hundreds of families all over the country, and, and family caregivers reach out to me all the time and talk about the crisis. I think that it's just bubbling right below the surface of becoming a straw that breaks the camel's back. I hear you. Well, final question. What gives you optimism about this issue? Well, I'll tell you what, I do feel incredibly optimistic because there's so many people who are activated and engaging civically. So I'm very hopeful in the end we will win. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. I too believe that the drastic increase in civic engagement bodes well for us as a society. 30,000 women have raised their hands up to run for office just this year, many of whom are family caregivers and who understand the challenges. They will be champions for a caring infrastructure. Many families are already struggling as it is without the additional burden of having to pay for elder care or provide care at the expense of having a paying job. American families are at a crisis point and the needs for care are only going to increase.
Home care is the fastest growing occupation in the U.S. because of the huge demand. Right now, over a third of the workforce is foreign-born. Many are undocumented. We need to bring all of these people who are doing home care work out of the shadows. Caring Across Generations proposes that these workers can receive proper training and contextualized English as a second language to really prepare them for the workforce of the 21st century and provide a path for citizenship. Further, we need to provide benefits and living wages for these jobs. These would be essential in averting a full-blown national crisis. It's possible for us to create a caring infrastructure that supports our families, provides good care, and is cost-effective without draining existing social or health programs. Support and pay attention to issues around Medicare and the Affordable Care Act. Demand solutions at the ballot box. Our best chance is to vote for candidates who support a care agenda, such as in Hawaii. And Mainers, be sure to vote in November. If you like this episode, please tell a friend about it. We're always looking for new listeners for future hindsight. This episode concludes Season 1. We're working hard on great interviews for Season 2. Stay tuned for more. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumu. Find us online at futurehindsight.us and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.